Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Oh, hello there, listeners. You're back. That either means that someone's tricked you into listening to this podcast or that you actually enjoy my ramblings. You'll enjoy today's show, no doubt, with my amazing guest, Lydia Tanner. Lydia is an intelligent, insightful, and introspective woman. She takes time to share some of her philosophies about racing, why she has chosen to compete and stop competing at times in her racing adventures, and she's very open about some of her struggles in the sport. If you want to reach out with comments about today's episode, or just yell at me, or compliment Lydia, make the keyboard mudras, cycling in alignment at fastlabs.com, and I'll do my best to respond in a timely manner. Disclaimer, I'm currently experiencing an email landslide of epic proportions, so it's not you, it's me, but I'll do my best. Hang tight, little camper. I have always had good conversations with you when we worked together, and obviously we worked together a long time ago. But then more recently, when you came in for a fit, it was like, it just seemed like we had some good flow and good ideas and good philosophical ideas to discuss about cycling. And and in particular, um, I listened to your podcast with Dave, and... I felt like that was a great episode, but to me, it was just like we just painted the surface yeah. of some of the things that I'd like to to get into. Felt like he asked you a lot of really good questions and you had great answers, but I wanted more. I wanted to unpack some more. Long form. Long format. <laughs> so Lydia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for making the time to come in today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Right on. Uh, it's a nice sunny day here in Boulder, Colorado. Hot. Hot, 90, mm-hmm. but it's a dry heat. As always. Right. <laughs> Which I learned is actually better for sweat. Why is that? Because uh, the, the gradient helps with evaporative cooling better. So if it's dry out, your sweat works better than if it's humid out. I would agree with that. <laughs> the downside being when we're in Breckenridge or whatever, that every bre- every exhale you take, you lose moisture out your breath. It's the equivalent of leaving your refrigerator open and trying to air condition your whole house with it, right? Yeah. So when we're doing our super cool epic mountain bike rides up in wherever at a fulfilling feet of elevation yeah, and altitude. I learned <laughs> the difference between this only recently. Really? What's the difference? Well, altitude technically is when you're flying an airplane. It's when you're up in the atmosphere. Elevation is when you're on the planet Earth, but your distance from the center of the Earth has changed or grown or shrunk. So like what if you're on a mountain and you like jump into the air? Then you would be starting at a high elevation and adding some altitude. <laughs> About amplitude. (laughs) If you jump and yell really loud, then I guess that would be amplitude, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So. Nice. Um, Have you been mountain biking much? Mm, No, No. I haven't, but a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think we talked about that a little bit last time because I forgot that you were a mountain biker. You forgot? Yeah, even though you like got me to do the Brack Epic and and told me all about it and gave me all the beta, I totally forgot. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. 
you know, that's how the human mind works. We yeah. compartmentalize things. Oh, well, yeah. And I think I just always think of you as like a track racer and like a mm-hmm. road rider. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair point. Yeah. I make the cyclocrosses for a while too. Tell us about yourself. Oh, what do you want to know? Who are you? Tell us everything. Oh, God. That's a big question. The little bits, the big bits. You grew up here in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, I was born here in Colorado, grew up doing a lot of skiing and mountain biking. Uh, I was actually really committed to being a ski racer as you do when you grow up in Colorado, but I blew my knee two years in a row, had two ACL surgeries. Hmm. And while I was rehabbing that, my physical therapist, Ann Trombley, told me like, you should just be a mountain biker because I was riding a ton of stationary bike to um, rehab that knee. The first time around with the injury, I was like, oh no, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be a ski racer. And then I, and I blew my knee again after like five mm. days back on snow. And I came right back to Anne and she's like, you should just ride bikes. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so that kind of got me started. And um, yeah, I, I got really serious about it really fast. There weren't the same sort of pathways, I think, for juniors into the elite ranks back when I started. So it was kind of a rough go of it. How old were um, you when you started mountain biking? 12. Um, but then I was 15 when I started racing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 15 and 16 were the years I blew my knee. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it was it was that sort of like you start racing and, and you're really good because you're 15 and there's like four people at the races and then they send you to Europe and it's really gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was, it, I, I loved the experience of it. It was, um, it was great to travel. It was great to learn that I can be really, really scared and still ride fast. Um, and that, you know, I can be in these really intimidating, heavy situations and still pull it off. Um, I think that's a really valuable thing to learn when you're a kid. Mm. Um, but ultimately, I was like way too, like I didn't have any perception of like context or balance. And I was way too into it. And I got like way sucked in and it wasn't good for me. So ended up uh, kind of stepping away when I was like 22, 23, which mm-hmm. is I think around when... Because I started working with you when I was, what, 21? I'm a terrible chronological person unless it happened in my own life and kind of related to my own racing career. Then that would require me to know how old you were relative to how old I was. I think you were still going for a master's record at that point. So 2013? No. Wasn't that No, yeah, it was. Was that recent? Well, so I raced the world championships in 2010. Okay. Um, As an elite? No, as a U23. Um, Ah, Okay. But I did my first World Cup that year also as an elite, and that was – it was amazing, but it was really hard. <laughs> I started working with you, I think, right after that, and um, I was already, like, pretty fried, if I remember. And I feel really bad for hiring you because I think it was pretty <laughs> rough. <laughs> I just remember being like, my power meter never worked. My heart rate monitor never worked. I always got lost. I always ran into construction. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I was, <laughs> I was going through my training log um, actually – last year to like see what I'd been doing back then to see if it was really that hard. Mm. And I literally don't think I ever completed a workout that you gave me. I think I just always had like some reason why I couldn't do it. And I, think, I think we went through a pretty good run like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you're so patient with me and you just were like, okay, you know, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Mm. I think at one point I sent you a picture of my foot, which had gotten really frozen on a bike ride. <laughs> and uh, cause I was training in Montana and I, my foot was like, like purple. icy white purple Ooh. and was like coming back to life and it looked horrendous. And I was like, Colby needs to understand this. Yeah. <laughs> you're probably like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Montana will kick your ass. Colorado's brutal, but Montana's another level. Yeah. yeah. I, I lived there for seven years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, that was the that was the end of bike racing for a while for me, and I just mm. kind of um, had to relearn how to be an athlete, which was like took a lot of soul searching and a lot of ego honesty, and um, I had to be really sedentary at times just to see what would happen. And um, like I got I got really into climbing because it's a really intentional and mindful sort of activity. Like I think. Everything about bike racing is about ignoring how you feel, but like everything about climbing is about tuning into like every minutia that you can feel. Mm, that's an interesting statement. Yeah, the times when I've tried to, and I know you're probably going to disagree with ignoring what you feel when you're bike racing, but. <laughs> well, as a coach, I, I try to teach my riders to look inward while they're riding and training and racing for sure. I think that's ultimately the goal. For me, the goal yeah. of any sport is connection of it's unity of mind and body with intent. Yeah. And you do that by looking inwards. But so, that's scary. Oh, you're <laughs> so right about that. For it many is. people, it is scary. It's yeah. super scary because yeah. it's really painful. And it involves like a lot of like realistic talk about like your abilities, mm -hmm. which sometimes isn't like really what you want to know about yourself. So, okay, great statement. Let's, let's examine. You get into sport because you want to be a competitive athlete and you want to prove how good you are. But then the more the sport drives you and the more elite end you get toward, the more you, you travel or progress towards the elite end of the sport, the more you're forced to look at your own abilities and come become connected with yourself and look inward. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm, there's sort of a dichotomous path there in that sense, because the further you go towards the higher end of the sport, the more competitive it becomes. And the more truth comes out. I mean, this is what I think is beautiful about the bike is that oh, yeah. you see people's personalities come out while they're racing. You can see it on their faces. Yeah. They're the, the demons come out. Yeah. You sponge the demons. Now. And I remember you telling me that at one point you're like, I love looking at up photos of people racing. You're mm -hmm. like, cause you can always tell exactly who they are on the bike. And I, my, my immediate reaction to that was like, Ooh, I bet my photos are terrible. Oh, like, <laughs> I was like, I bet I look like I'm just dying inside. <laughs> right? mm. I think the the higher level you get in the sport, the more honest you have to be about where you're at. Because to make those improvements, you have to know, like, without ego, where you are. Right? That's that's scary. It's hard. Isn't that what makes the sport beautiful, though? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when you see someone who can do it, they're like a superhero. Mm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the sense that they can look themselves directly in the mirror and see what's there and be honest about it and yeah. be okay with it. Yeah. And I think you get that sense from really elite athletes at, in any sport, really. Mm. Like that they're kind of, they know themselves really well. On the flip side of that, we could say that if the athlete looks, in the, looks at themselves honestly and sees through their own layers of bullshit when they're at the highest level of sport, but at the same time they begin to identify with that self then if that is taken away from them, they can have real challenges, right? Yeah, but I think that, that everyone has a self outside of sport. Well, I hope so. I know. But I, I hope you're right is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, I, I know because I've been there. I didn't think I did. And it took me a really long time to like dig into what I was outside of bike riding. I think everyone has something there. I think there's there's always a bedrock there. I think it's hard, especially when you get a lot of your self-worth and community and validation and um, what have you from your sport. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think if you've only ever had success in a sport, it's really easy to just be like, yeah, this is who I am. Right. So the problem there being, of course, that just like anything, sport is impermanent. Right. Because right. we all get old. We all get old. We all get injured. We all get injured. Yeah. We all can't go as fast anymore or don't get a contract or don't get invited to go back to the next national team camp or now, of course, if you are clever enough about it, you can just parlay it into a job as a director or a coach mm-hmm. or a whatever and keep your identity sort of alive in that sense, but from the other side of the fence, I suppose. But then it's like, is your job your identity? I, for some people, I would argue it is. Yeah. I mean, there are there are directors I know of, men in particular, who pretty much live the exact same life they did as a racer. The difference now is only that they're doing the same races they've always done but in a car instead of on a bike. Hmm. They're having the same adrenal load, the same cortisol, only they don't have the physical release of it. Yeah. Instead, they go to the hotel bar and drink a beer after every stage and then they swell. <laughs> <laughs> Tends to be the result. Yeah. Do you think that they're happy with that? I couldn't tell you to be honest. Like, like, is it just perpetuating that like satisfaction and identity and community and validation? Or is it, is it like holding on to something too long? Right. Great question. Yeah. I would imagine there's some of both in there for a lot of those people. Yeah. Probably depends on how at peace they were with their own racing demons. And also if they're still practicing the sport, I mean, someone who truly loves the sport and wants to treat it as a practice will see it from all different sides and perhaps be able to look at it through the eyes of the athletes they're now directing or assisting or sports sciencing or whatever they're doing and still play the game in that sense, find ways, new ways to solve problems, new ways to to geek out on the technology or new ways to find tactical solutions to problems they couldn't find when they were racers. Mm -hmm. If they're coming at it from that angle, perhaps it's still an area of growth for them in their lives. Yeah. But if they're doing it because they got married when they were 24 and they basically didn't know their wives for the 10 years they kept racing and then they went home one winter and went, whoa, what did I do? And then they sign up as a director to run away from their wife and kids then, (laughs) or themselves. What do you think is like a better... Uh, trajectory as you lose that ability to get validation slash community slash, you know, sense well, of self from racing. I'm, you've already touched on this point. I mean, ultimately all the tools we have are within. Yeah. So if you're looking at, for external validation through sport, it doesn't matter if it's through sport or through likes on Instagram or podcast listens or whatever you're working towards and then that external validation will eventually evaporate. It'll eventually change. It'll eventually shift or go away unless you're, I don't know, Tom Cruise. Yeah. So, uh, or Angelina Jolie. But and for the rest of us. you just get more beautiful by every day. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't mean Tom Cruise. <laughs> you, you disagree? I meant Tom Cruise. <laughs> no. <laughs> more of a Brad Pitt guy myself. No. Oh, yeah. He does get better every day too. Well, I'll say it this way. What we're looking for is validation. You're only going to find validation within yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's your bedrock. That's your, to borrow your term. Yeah. I mean, you have to rely on your own foundation. You have to rely on your own sense of self and security and self love to know that you're good enough to go out and express your best potential in whatever you're doing. So, mm-hmm. If you don't believe in yourself or you think that only a coach or a teammate or a race result will get you the approval that you need to be the person that you think the world wants you to be, then you're going to be 
Well, you know, like the old colloquial saying goes, life will give you the lesson until you pass it. And when you pass it, you may move on to the next one. But <laughs> until you pass it, the lesson will be repeated. Yeah, I think there's lots of ways people get validation. And being your own bedrock is awesome. I think it's hard when you're getting lots of validation externally, right? You bet. Um, and I think, I think racing is a great tool to learn about yourself. And I think in like a really healthy way, it can give you those tools so that once you reach the peak of that trajectory, you're really well set up for life, right? Mm -hmm. But I think more often than not, people get more dependent on the validation than they need to, mm -hmm. right? Or that they should. I hate saying should, but yeah. Yeah. We're on the same page on that word. I know. So, well, right. I mean, okay, let's, let's have a thought experiment. Let's imagine that you are laying on your deathbed. You've got some painless, peaceful passing coming up and you're reflective. You look back on your life. Are you going to be like, damn it, I wish I would have won that bike race. Why right. didn't I train harder? Yeah. I mean, maybe if you are the handful of people we can think of who missed an Olympic gold medal and ended up with a silver by a fraction of a second, or if you're Shelly Olds and you flatted out of the break in London. Yeah. Right. Slipped a pedal or had some like horrible mistake. I yeah. mean, it's possible you could look back on that moment and go, oh, I got screwed. Yeah. But we all have moments where we got screwed in life. It's just that some of them were like, I had the world's most perfect cup of coffee and the cup, the cup, the bottom of the cup fell out and it went all over my lap. And that was just like, that was the best cup of coffee I'd ever had in a long time. <laughs> I hadn't had one in a month or whatever. <laughs> Not a big deal. But, and then other people miss gold medals or mm -hmm. get in traffic accidents on the way to a job interview or who knows what, or maybe they lose that super smoking hot girl's phone number <laughs> and then she's gone forever. Yeah. We all have moments like that. But really what I'm getting at is when you're laying on your deathbed, are you going to look back and say to yourself, like, how are you going to look upon your life and judge your own existence? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of the point I got to with racing is I was like, I know I will not look back on, you know, wishing I'd trained. I'll look back on the sport as a whole and like what it gave me as a tool in my life. Right. And what I learned from it that I could carry into my relationships, into my family, into my community, right? I really think the sport has a lot more to offer than, you know, that rack of medals. Those are great moments and they're memories that we, you know, if we have a few good ones, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. But I think the the larger whole is what's more important. And I think it's a tool. I think of it more as a tool now. So what what tools did racing give you exactly to deal with relationships or work? Oh, man. Um, well, a lot of how not to bees. <laughs> how not to bees? Okay. Yeah. How, do you, how do we not be? I, w I tend to become overly, like my tendency is to get really sucked into racing because I'm really competitive. Yeah. So, and it took me a long time to realize I'm neither happier nor faster in that place. Like I am, hmm. I'm a mess. So it's a weird thing that as you're like, this is my natural tendency, but it's something I need to not do, right? But yeah, I mean, I think any anything in life is like that. If you get too sucked in or you become too dependent on it, it it makes you sacrifice other parts of your life that are really important. So I think astrologically that would be termed your south node, right? I don't know what that means. So it's sort of like, it's it's pretty much what you described. It's a thing that you can really get invested in and really devote a lot of time and energy into, and it's got a powerful draw for you. Yeah. But when you sort of follow that draw to the to the nth degree, 
it becomes not constructive. It, it actually yeah. starts to undo you, yeah. tears you apart or, or really starts to not serve you, right? It's not a positive end. It sort of takes you down. Yeah. That's a, that's a south node tendency. I think when mm. people recognize those in themselves, it can be a little bit instructive, mm -hmm. you know? Um, uh, like, well, a simple example would be like a bowl of cashews for me might be south node. <laughs> like, mm, these are delicious. <laughs> and there are not very many foods that I'll tend to eat unconsciously. Yeah. But if there's a whole bowl of perfectly roasted salted cashews next to me, I, like all of a sudden it's like, ooh, why did I really eat that whole bowl of cashews? And then there's a little, little lump in my stomach. More of a... <laughs> that sounds pretty dark. Right? <laughs> That's rough. <I> <laughs> it's like exactly the same thing. These are my struggles. <laughs> I mean, look. <laughs> More of a metaphor than a direct example. But um, I mean, I okay, to be more... More direct, I've had some south node, well, some specific days of training on the bike. I, rem I recall training in, I think one year I was out at Super Week and the, the day got canceled. Mm -hmm. Super Week, for you youngins out there, is what Tour of America's Dairyland or Toad used to be called. It was pretty much the same races and the same courses, except all the crits were 100K long instead of an hour or an hour and 10 minutes or whatever they are. And all the guys who were rejects from the tour like didn't make their tour de france team would come over to meet american girls and drink beer and stay in host family houses in milwaukee and smash american crit racers especially crush, crush 18 year olds souls. yeah crush souls especially skinny 18 year olds like me <laughs> so i don't know i think maybe this is 98 i remember being out there and one of the days got canceled because it was super stormy like tornado warnings i was like well i'm not gonna miss a day of training so i go out training and I put on some terrible, I went through a pretty bad 80s, like techno music, like European house music phase. And I think was, that's mandatory when you're 18 in road racing. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Makes me feel a little better. Maybe. <laughs> but it just had this relentless beat, you know, and it was on repeat. This is in the day of mini disc players. Also for you youngins who don't know what that is. Anyway, I won't talk about going uphill both ways with the snow and stuff, but <laughs> suffice it to say that... As much as I love, air quotes, my iPhone, it's a lot more accessible in terms of things like storage and music. But I don't remember the name of the band. It doesn't matter. But it was just, just picture like someone beating a metal pail with a frying pan and then add some synthesizers and like, and then put that person on acid and then record what they made. And then that's what I rode to for six hours. Yeah. Now, probably pretty effective for, you know, a one hour workout, but for six hours in a row, I came home and I would just, I was like a skeleton. Like I just kept going and going and going. It was like riding to a metronome. Yeah. That was a very South Node ride. Like I probably went about twice as far as I should have. I almost died because I pretty much rode right through the middle of a tornado, like a dumbass. And I just throttled myself. Yeah. And, and I remember being really depleted and empty for the next few days. And probably it was a combination of just the kind of constant pace of that ride and I probably didn't eat enough and I don't know all the grocery stores were probably closed because of a tornado so the point being is that that's one instance of sort of south node behavior that you can go down the dark path a little bit and mm -hmm. something that you think superficially will serve you and it ends up actually being your undoing in a way for sure on a much bigger scale it sounds like you maybe wrestle with that as we all do I think oh for sure yeah I don't know if it's a bigger scale it sounds about the same as me <laughs> well when you take that same pattern and multiply it over you know a month or two yeah. three months then you end up really depleted really yeah hormonally depleted right and Ener negative energy balance yeah 
Right. Especially when you're not eating. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have, I remember that ride for me was, uh, it was a race in Sol Vista. It was after nationals. Um, and it was a race that was just like a local race. And at that point I weighed like 112 pounds and I was so hungry and so dizzy. I couldn't finish the race. Oh. I like stopped in the middle of the race and my coach didn't even say anything. She just like handed me a sandwich. Just made you eat food? Yeah. Yeah. Did you eat it? Yeah, I was able to eat the sandwich and I'm glad I was able to. I realized that um, there's definitely people who struggle with it more than I did and would not have been able to. So mm. um, I feel lucky that I had enough of a grip on it. But mm. um, yeah, it's it's it was a rough one. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So... Do you feel like you struggled with body image or watts per kilo kind of mentality in racing a lot? Yeah. I. It's a weird thing because I, I think that it's like an unspoken challenge that every teenage girl deals with when she has to do a sport where she wears spandex. Yeah. I think every female who tries to get into cycling contends with this. And especially when you're like 14 or 15 mm -hmm. and your body's like changing a lot and um, can be really different every day, it seems like. And right. uh, and it's not doing what you want it to. And like, I think it's it's just this really, really vulnerable point for many women in the sport. Add, you know, regular teenage insecurities into a sport that values strength to weight ratio and puts you in spandex every day. Where you're on display all the time. You're constantly on display doing scary things, right? Yep. Um, yep. And yeah, I think it's just kind of a perfect storm. I, mm. I, uh, I know that I am not alone in that mm. uh, situation. I think lots of women have dealt with it mm. um, to different degrees of openness. But um, yeah, it basically wrecked me for a solid two years. I was, I was so overtrained and so depleted that like after I stopped working with you, I didn't touch a bike for two years really. Yeah. Um, over that time, it was like a lot of like, making batches of cookies and eating the entire thing mm. <laughs> and you know just like and eating with friends and cooking with friends and going on really big adventures and making sure we ate a ton afterwards you know like i think i had a group of friends who i really think was instrumental in helping me like make peace with like the way a normal athlete's metabolism should work mm -hmm. um because none of them had any hang-ups about it because they were all mountaineers they were wearing like baggy clothes they don't care right you know it's not cool to be skinny when you're a mountaineer you want to just be able to go for like eight hours right right um so it really helped me shift my whole mentality from I want to be as skinny as Irina Klentieva, whose socks were baggy, to I want to be able to use my body for eight hours and not get grumpy and sad and, you know, need to nap, right? right. I feel like I just, I, I went, I edged into that hole that I know sucks in a lot of racers. And I was lucky that I had like people who pulled me right back out. Hmm. But yeah, and I know it's like a very common thing. <laughs> you know, looking back on it, I probably didn't I probably didn't suss out that issue quite enough with you. I don't think I had the instinct to feel that enough or ask the right questions. Yeah. I know later working with like Abby Mickey, for example, she, she'll, she told me a couple times that at one point she walked in my office and I literally just looked at her and was like, girl, eat a pizza right now. Yeah. Because she had, I could see that she had just gone a well, little bit too far and well the really fucked up thing is that i'd walk into rooms and people would be like oh my god you look so look great. great you yeah. look so great right now right and i i mean i was literally like 
not menstruating, hadn't eaten anything but yeah. dry noodles that day. Like it was mm. bad. <laughs> Man, that's that's a challenge, isn't it? Um, I think part of what really contributes to that problem is is watts per kilo. And that's poignant right now because so many people are Zwifting. I know you don't do that and I don't do that. So <laughs> we'll just treat it like, what's that character in Harry Potter whose name you can't say? Voldemort. That one. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Zwift so, is not Voldemort. <laughs> Zwift is definitely Voldemort. <laughs> Zwift is right up there with should in my world. Uh, yeah. I can, I can see why you feel that way. What are bikes meant to do? Yeah. Get you places. Thank you. Yeah. Where? How many kilometers do you ride when you stand Zwift for three hours? <laughs> I, Donut. Yeah. Right? I hear you. I um, And to be fair, Zwift has its place. I know people like it. I don't have a problem with people having fun. As Phil Gaiman says, if you're riding a bike and doing it safely and having fun, you're doing it right. I'm down with that. That said, I have a rash of people coming into my training studio and my fit studio who are like, hey, I don't know why, but my whatever insert body part here hurts more than normal and my is acting up more than normal. Oh, yeah. What have we, you been doing? We oh. talked about this. Yeah. Trainer syndrome. Yeah, like, yeah. It like locking a bike into a trainer takes all the things that are bad about cycling and magnifies them and yeah. makes them worse. Yeah, because so, you're not moving in any way. But to steer back to watts per kilo, like when you're riding Zwift and you're looking at your modeled watts per kilo, which is just a mathematical model of literally your weight against your power, which has almost nothing to do with real world riding, even mountain biking, which has very, very little dependence on aerodynamics, but there's mm -hmm. so many other variables in a mountain bike race. I mean, how technical is that sport? How many factors are there mm -hmm. in the performance outcome of a race? Otherwise we would all just have Zwift mountain bike races. Yeah. And well, I'm sure that's not far off. I'm <clears throat> probably not. So, <laughs> so I think that that, but okay, what's the basic problem there? Like the, the assumption is that when you push on one lever, things get better. If you mm -hmm. add Watts, okay. Watts per kilo equals speed. If you can, you can either add Watts or reduce kilos, mm -hmm. or most people try to do both. They mm -hmm. train really hard and eat less. Yep. Well, okay. That's a teeter totter. Yeah. Right. So you push really hard on one lever and you're going to get reduced performance on the other. Yeah. That's how it works. But it's also a 50,000 foot view because weight is not the indicator of an athlete's body composition, mm -hmm. right? I mean, an endurance athlete, a good endurance athlete who's well-trained and training in 90 degree heat like we are at elevation. Sorry, I touched a thing. Don't touch any things, <laughs> but stay hydrated. Yeah. <laughs> a, a good endurance athlete can have their weight swing easily two or three kilograms. Oh, more than that. In I, 24 oh, hours. Yeah. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you drain your glycogen tank, you wring out the towel and it becomes dry yeah. and light mm -hmm. and it blows away in the wind. But then you eat a bunch of food because you're smart and you know that you have to refuel all yeah. that stuff that you just used up. And carbs are stored with water. Yep. And when you're hot, then your blood volume, when you're training in the heat, then your body sucks up more water to increase blood volume. Yeah. So two or three kilograms, which is like four or five pounds in irrelevant units for those of you out there who don't know what kilograms are, that's a big swing in weight and people can get on the scale. And when they're looking at the watts per kilo mentality, they're looking at their metrics with that mentality and they think more weight is bad. Yep. Then they're led to an erroneous conclusion, which is, oh, I'm five pounds heavier than I was yesterday. I need to not eat breakfast before I go ride far out. Right. The more I've learned about energy availability and energy deficiency in sport, the more I've found that like making that decision 
is so much more detrimental than just being hungry. Like it sets off this crazy cascade of hormonal effects that basically negate your training for the day. Yes. And maybe the next three days, right? Like it, you're so messed up and it takes like like a deficiency of what, like two or 300 calories mm -hmm. before your body basically kicks into emergency mode, mm -hmm. especially if you're a woman, right? Um, uh, right. Which is, I had no idea that it was that easy to upset that balance. And it's really interesting as I've like, you know, made peace with being puffy sometimes, right? I, um, I've realized that that exactly what you're saying happens to me. Like I'll go for like a big weekend or a big like marathon race. And I, the next day I literally have cankles mm -hmm. and it's a horrible feeling. You're like, oh man, like I just did this big thing and I look terrible, right? It's like negative reinforcement. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't feel good. I guess I should, you know, and, and my, shouldn't I have my past self, yeah. Right. Like, shouldn't I be like veinier today? <laughs> right. But in my past world, I've totally would have been like, oh God, I got us. I must've overindulged after my race. I should probably, you mm -hmm. know, be done and like ride extra hard today. Right. right. Um, but now I just realize that it's part of the process and it goes away in like a couple of days and I feel fine, you right. know, and then I'm rested and I'm ready to train then again. You're ready to go. And you probably feel great because your I body feel great. went through that little yeah. hypercompensation. It's know? a, it's a wild thing to actually recover mm -hmm. and to go for a ride and feel recovered. Like, mm. I don't think I ever actually got that when I was racing. Cause I was always in that like insecurity spiral. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, I, um, I had this big ride this weekend puffed up. <laughs> yeah, didn't you <laughs> take a day off? I think I saw your Strava doodles or something. Like, yeah. Didn't you go to Winter Park? Yeah, I went to Winter Park and then back. So how many hours was that each way? Way there, it was like seven and a half and the way back it was like six and a half. And you went over Rollins? I went yes. over Berthed the way there. Ah. So we went over, because Boulder Canyon Skills, we had to go over uh, Logan Mill and Sugarloaf yep. Yep. to Berthed. Mm -hmm. And then the next day we came back over Trail Ridge. Awesome. It was beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Did when you get we were, held on or anything? No, we got super lucky. I think nice. did I tell you the last time I was up there, we got held on and I didn't have any gloves. So I had to buy these like hilarious wool mittens from the gift store. Nice. Um, my dad and I were wearing these like wool mittens on our way down. Um, but yeah. no, we literally had storms in every direction and we could see them and it was snowing and it was yep. raining and there was yep. lightning. And we just stayed in this like perfect magical bubble of okayness. Like the roads were soaked, but it was sunny where we were. Nice. Like <laughs> for the whole ride. And then we got a tailwind from hygiene all the way home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which never happens. Well done. That yeah. doesn't happen a lot. This is going to be like a very locals only section of the podcast. That's okay. <laughs> Everyone will appreciate the basics of it. The riding anyway. through the storms and the tailwind on the, at yeah. the end of the eight hours. At the know? end of the, the big weekend. Anyway, right. totally puffed up. I'm, I'm coaching, so I had to go do some rides coaching. Um, then I took Wednesday completely off, and today I felt amazing. And I was like, oh, it's so cool to, like, know that I've adapted to that training, you mm -hmm. know? And it's such a simple thing, but I think uh, if you don't feel good after a couple of days, like, you're, you're, you're too tired. You you're need to rest more. <laughs> yeah. The analogy I like to use with that is it's as if you're swimming in the ocean and endurance athletes – become chronically addicted to dunking themselves. So think of every big load, whether it's in the gym or intervals or a race or whatever, pretty much you're getting dunked mm -hmm. and you're getting, the bigger the load, the harder the dunk is. Mm -hmm. So you're underwater, you can't breathe, you have to come off for air. And I think the chronic trainer, the chronic cardio, the endurance addicted, or what was the term you used? You said you were sort of in that paradigm of constant load but you had a phrase for it. Insecurity spiral. That's a great one. <laughs> when you're in the insecurity spiral, <laughs> as soon as you come up for air and you take a single breath, 
you're immediately concerned about making enough gains or gaining enough ground on your competition or preparing for your next race, yeah. you just dunk yourself immediately. Yeah. And you repeat that process over and over again. Yeah. And look, there's a balance here. I mean, that's how you make gains in training at certain points. But if you do that endlessly, then you eventually drown. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll at least become depleted and really chronically tired and grumpy and you'll become, you'll probably end up in negative energy balance because it's really hard to eat when you're almost drowning all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So I prefer, every once in a while I say, look, you know, for a few days, we're going to go up on the beach and just take a nap and watch people play volleyball or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's how things are going to go. Or whatever's restorative to you, right? Exactly. Like, you know, maybe it's yeah. a hike, right? Like I like to go for a hike with my dog. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think uh, it, it took hanging out with a different kind of athlete for me to realize that that sort of like uh, masochistic, like, you know, no pain, no glory sort of mm -hmm. uh, training paradigm didn't work for me. Mm. I think it does for some people. I think some people have a higher tolerance for being dunked. <laughs> but I think like, I don't know, I don't think I have a great tolerance for being dunked. I think I actually need quite a lot of recovery. Mm -hmm. But when I give myself that, I can be quite fast. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's an interesting thing. Mm, that's a great insight that you had into your own physiology that way. It takes, I think that can be a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I think there are people who are more tolerant to dunking, but everybody needs their beach nap. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, we're all humans and. Well, we all know that, that athlete who's like running on like pure negativity and hate and mm. they can be like real strong and maybe mm -hmm. for like a season or two. Yeah. Right. But they never stick around for that much longer. Yeah. And I it's think. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's like my focus as an athlete and a coach going forward is like, what is the most sustainable practice of this sport for me? Great. And so that means lots of beach naps. <laughs> yes. Good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of our most important onuses, oni, um, as coaches is to I, like what do we all do as athletes? We get lost bumping into trees and the yeah. coach has to look at the whole forest, right? And you're constantly refocusing the athlete to that long-term view. Well, You've and we're constantly them. looking up that chart, like the Coggin chart about watts per kilo. And we're constantly looking up like the, you know, how fast should I recover if I want to be a pro to a racer? And you, you read right. about how fast you need to recover. Right. And so you just try to make it so, mm. right? And Try to fit that mold you're saying, fit yeah. that. Yeah. Hmm, that's funny. I just did an episode the other day on formulaic thinking and why it doesn't work for the individual. Yeah. This would be another example of perhaps how that applies. So is that like a coach's role, you think, to like expand that more? Well, yeah, I do. Or to I like mean, just slap it out of your hand and be like, stop looking at that. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to handle it. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, ultimately, any coaching program has to be applied to an individual. And one of my favorite expressions that I repeat ad nauseum is God is a novelty generator. Like what works for Lydia won't work for Susan and may not work for Mary or may or may not work for Joe. Mm -hmm. um, but you're all individuals. Everyone's going to respond differently in training. Ultimately, no matter what any coach tells you is a black box problem. Yeah. We are putting an input into a mysterious black box where weird stuff happens that we don't totally understand. We understand a lot of it, but we don't understand a lot of it. And then out comes this output. Yeah. And then there are all the problems with the output. First of all, how do we quantify the output and how do we evaluate the output? And are we looking at power? Are we looking at watts? Are we looking at race results? Are we looking at RPE? Are we looking at... Ponies seeing on your head? 
Right. That's number my friend's metric. <laughs> That's a very good one. Isn't it? Number of ponies identified. Yeah. Number of wild animals. Yeah. So we look at these metrics, this output, and then we decide, how did our input do? Mm-hmm. Did we did we write an effective training program or were we totally off base? Did this person crash and burn or are they smashing watts all over the place? Happiness watts. Mm-hmm. And then we modify the input based on the output and also based on the feedback of the athlete. So each of those black boxes is a unique to the person yeah. because they have their own physiology. It's also unique to the season. It's even unique to the day, month, and year. So I've had athletes many times come to me and be like, oh man, I went so well back in insert historical period here. Can we just make the same program? Well, sure we can, but there's about a 0% chance that it'll work the same because you're a different human Mm -hmm. and you've gone through different things. So all of your cells are different. All of your cells are different. You grew new ones. Yeah. One of the important jobs of the coach, well, three important jobs we can outline. One is trade out the forest for the trees. Two is apply a program to each individual rider and try to figure out how they're responding to that program. Mm-hmm. Every rider will respond to every program differently. Mm-hmm. And I think the third onus of the modern coach, which I'll go ahead and say a lot of coaches I know haven't quite figured this out yet. And this is a relatively new paradigm. Well, actually it isn't, but unfortunately it just hasn't caught on yet, is how hard we can push the recovery button. Because even when you were racing as a younger raider, and when I was certainly racing, we thought of we thought of training in terms of yang or nothing. Mm-hmm. We had no concept of applying a yin modality to actually enhance the recovery of an athlete. Absolutely, yeah. So you were either on your bike, smashing yourself to oblivion, or you were on the couch flipping channels. Yeah, like that taking was a zero. Recovery. Yeah. Right. Is that so? I've been wondering about that. Is that like a? Um, was that just the '90s or the '80s, or is like, do we just know more now or were we just being ignorant back then? I think it was both. Yeah. We know more. The only the only other recovery modality we can think of that was applied regularly back then was massage. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The the one person you knew who went out and did something weird like acupuncture or Cairo was like, whoa, dude, are you a hippie or what? Yeah. Like <laughs> everyone else just got a massage if they were on a team that gave them massage mm-hmm. or if they could afford massage, which wasn't many bike racers. Yeah occasionally every once in a blue moon, you'd find a rider who was like, Hey, I bought this thing called a foam roller. And then people got those little sticks and they would rub their own quads for like eight Mm -hmm. minutes before they slept, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like a drop in the bucket really in of, of like municipal water, not even good water. Yeah. So now we know so many things, right? We know all the things about lymphatic drainage and hot, cold therapy or ice baths. And we can debate lots of science about whether or not they air quotes work or whether or not they're worse for you than not. But I think the the big point, that's not really where I want to go with it. The, the point I'm trying to make is that we have a lot more ammunition on our pile of pushing down the other side of the teeter-totter mm-hmm. to actually enable an athlete or empower an athlete to actively monitor or actualize their own recovery methods Mm -hmm. instead of just laying on the couch and waiting passively for their legs to magically heal, which they will eventually, assuming you're giving the body good quality water and good food and you're sleeping, Mm -hmm. the body is the perfect healing machine. Yeah. But most athletes are a little impatient to let that process happen on its own curve. And they also want a sense of empowerment about their stuff, especially if you're a full-time athlete and you're being paid to do your job. Yeah. Like laying around feels like you're not working. It feels like you're, yeah. even though you're not, you're actually resting, you're doing arguably the most important part of your job, <laughs> right? Actually adapting. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those things are really just ways to carve out a mental window to be like intentional about your recovery. So you're like, this is the time when I'm recovering so that when you're when your day's over, you can look back on it and be like, I recovered today. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look when you sit on the couch, you look back on it. And you're like, I don't know. I just like didn't do anything today. Game of Thrones. Yeah. So I think no. it's I think it's it's both like, you know, having that sense of empowerment, but also um, like being able to understand that you're doing something you have a little more purpose to your day instead yeah. of being aimless yeah. yeah yeah i think that's fair yeah i think that's fair i think i i do believe that's one area of coaching that is pretty crucial is educating athletes about that um i like how you said push the recovery button push the recovery <laughs> button yeah so i like to teach a lot of paul check's principles and one of his most fundamental teachings is his six foundational principles mm-hmm. and those are eating, drinking, sleeping, movement, thinking, and breathing. Pretty simple, right? So thinking comes down to meditation for most people. Do you have a meditation practice, Lydia? Oh man, I wish I could say I do. (laughs) Have you played with one or tried some? I have, yeah. And I think think when I am in a really good place, I do have like time carved out for stuff like that um i like to do crafts i like to work with my hands so like i'll paint or i'll i I had had like a massive embroidery project like an old lady last year it was awesome um so when i have a a project like that i think it's really easy for me to carve out that time but i don't know i'm sure other people have been struggling with this but quarantine life doesn't really lend itself to carving out that time really well when Mm. you're living and working and breathing in the same space all the time. It's just feels weird to sit down and meditate. I don't know. It's hard mm. for me right now. Interesting. So, and I've noticed that my mental state is not super good because of it. Like yeah. I can I can objectively say I'm not in a very good mental place right now mm. with like acceptance. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um and yeah. and there's definitely things I could do for it. I think, you know, this this whole world right now is hard for people. There are a lot of challenges out there right now. Yeah. 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 So Yeah. I think some of it is just like accepting that. And then some of it is, yeah, maybe trying to be more proactive someday. (laughs) It's so interesting to hear, to talk and have conversations with people about how the quarantine or COVID has impacted their lives. I mean, we have everything you can imagine from people who are out of work and stressing about where they're going to find their next meal to people who are working from home, but have more time and are bored Mm -hmm. to homeschooling right yeah parents who now have to deal with navigating their children while trying to work from home right to people who are working in hospitals and are having pay cuts bizarrely enough but oh yeah i know a lot of hospital folks who got laid off which blows my mind because we're not having elective surgeries anymore yep yep (laughs) i can't add all those numbers up in my head i don't understand how that works it makes me yeah (laughs) yeah uh for me as a personal you know business owner running, I think three businesses now. I don't know. I kind of lose track depending on where you draw the line. And then as a creative person, who's always kind of got my own projects going on, I found myself busier than ever. Mm-hmm. For me, this was a chance to like put the pause button on fit work for a while and catch up on some things and take some classes and do a lot of that stuff. And then my calendar just exploded and, oh, I decided to start a podcast also like, <laughs> given the opportunity to start a podcast. Yeah. So I feel like creative people and people who run their own businesses have been busier than ever during this time because suddenly they have time to actually sort of make all these long-term projects happen. And then inevitably 
most creative people maybe tend to overestimate the number of hours in the day relative to the number of hours you can actually do things. Mm -hmm. I consistently make that error. (laughs) Oh, I can smash this and this and this. Yeah. So that's been my own experience with it. But I found your comment really interesting about not wanting to leave your space. Uh, Actually, on the way here, I made a detour and locked my bike at the base of Sunshine Canyon and then walked up to the Red Rocks and did some Tai Chi on top of the rocks. Mm. Oh, you know, that actually reminds me. I actually did that last night too. I shouldn't say I haven't been meditating because I like I went up to Sinitas and I sat by the rocks and I just sat there for a while last night. <laughs> awesome. But uh, that's funny. I totally forgot that I did that. I was like, no, I'm in a, I'm in a hole. <laughs> um, sorry, go on. Good for you. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's great. That's great. I mean... I know meditation for some people is probably a daunting idea and it's some people probably just consider it like batshit woo woo stuff. And that's, that's okay. I get it. Um, for me, I think as a Western person who grew up in Boulder, Colorado, it can be a bit daunting to sort of think that I'm going to undertake some practice and suddenly live like a monk and be able to quiet my mind. Mm. It's a little bit of a misperception about meditation, especially for someone who did grow up in the United States as a white male in the U.S. Um, in Western culture is mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. Like we don't – the mind is like an ocean. The ocean's never at rest. It's just a question of kind of how wavy it is and how whipped up and angry it is or how peaceful and calm it is. But there are always waves happening. The mind's always moving. One of the fundamental practices of meditation can be to observe those waves. And when you observe them, then you realize that you are not those waves. Mm -hmm. Your life force isn't necessarily the thoughts that are traveling through your head. They're like happy little, they're just, oh, look at that wave. That was an interesting (laughs) wave. Hmm, Where did that come from? The reason I bring this up is that I think meditation can be a really crucial practice for someone who feels like sometimes they can't escape Mm. their own dome, Mm -hmm. their own skull. Yeah, which I'm sure a lot of people feel like right now. I would guess that a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Have you seen like a lot of that with your clients? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to coaching the individual as a unique person. As coaches, we have to meet the client where they're at. I mean, you have to kind of get to know someone a bit and work with them for a month or two before you bring up certain topics. I mean, some people you'll figure it out right away and maybe they tell you, you know, off the blocks like, oh, I've been meditating for 10 years. Okay, then we know the conversation can start at a certain point. Right. But for someone who's never even entertained that idea before, if you hit them with, hey, man, I want you to do an hour of, you know, (laughs) sitting in full lotus a day and, you know, try to open your third eye and look at the stars and tell me what kind of rainbows you see. then you're maybe not setting yourself up. Wait, you can do that? I didn't know that this was an option. (laughs) This is an option. (laughs) There are all sorts of things Uh, that you can do. I'm like like level zero. (laughs) Level zero meditator over here. There is now a level zero. I'm just on the waves. (laughs) (laughs) That is the perfect place to be. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's like the rule of meditating, right? Wherever you are is the right place. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Which kind of also goes back to your journey as a racer. I mean, as a young junior, when you began racing mountain bikes, what? how old were you when you first went to Europe? Gosh, uh, I want to say 17. Yeah. And that was with the national team? Mm-hmm. And you raced some 
they just sent you probably to some cool yeah, stuff in France or yeah, we lived in a, a host like a house, a bike house in Kurtzarten, um, in Germany, and mm-hmm. we did the Swiss Racer Bike Cups, which yep. were like a step below World Cups, and yep. um, like that's like where the the World Cup racers would go, and they didn't have a race that weekend, and mm-hmm. um, it was it was so hard. <laughs> yeah, but you were drinking from the fire hose in terms of learning, I'm sure. For sure, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, I remember on one of one race I did, uh, we were in Bern, and it was a really, it was like in a city park, and you drive up, and you're like, oh, this is gonna be no, no sweat, and you get in, and it's just the scariest shit you've ever seen, and um, like just terrifying fall line drops and side hills, and it's all muddy, and the whole course is lined like four people deep, you know, it's wow. just like it's very intense. Yep. And um, I'm pre-riding with my teammate, and she falls and she breaks her arm. Oh. <laughs> So, like, we have to wait for the medics. They don't speak English. They keep calling her arm, her ankle. Um, they uh, uh, inject her on the trail and, like, cart wow. her off. And I'm like, oh. Well, and then happened. I have to go start a race. Right. And it's like um, mm. nothing really sh- nothing really rattles me on a bike after that. <laughs> like, like, I can wow. pretty much look at anything and be like, yeah, I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> I had to do this. There's this drop in that race that I, I didn't ride on the pre-ride, and I was so scared of it. And I, I walked down it every time. And every time I tried to walk down it, I fell because it was so steep and muddy. Like, I would yep. fall with my bike and then just slide down. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there were literally, like, German kids just standing at the bottom pointing at me and laughing. <laughs> right? Oh, boy. But then as soon as I was in the race and I had a wheel to follow, I rode it every time. You clean. just did what the wheel yep. in front of you did? Which is an amazing thing about racing mm. and riding with other women, I think. It's like if you see someone do it, you can do it. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was – I mean, yeah. I can't even – there are so many uh, instances like that in racing out there that just like changed my whole perspective of the sport like every minute, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and what I could do and what I was capable of and – but yeah, I mean, it was, I was also getting like, you know, third to last. I was getting pulled after like two laps, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just, it was like a real, a real uh, shock to the ego. <laughs> what an amazing opportunity to learn so many cool things though. For sure. Yeah. 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 And just to like experience, like, it's so funny that mountain biking started here, but it's so much more popular there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people are there, like people who clearly do not know any of the racers are there. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not your family members. They're not your competitors. They're actual members. spectators. They're actual spectators. They're there on a date. They're smoking cigarettes. Right. <laughs> like it's like it's like, hey, baby, you want to go to the races? You know, right. like it's a totally different. It was just. Yeah, it was a cool. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always grateful for that experience. It was mm. pretty wild. What came up for me there just now is some discussions I've had with people about the psychology of women and in comparison to the psychology of men in, in terms of competitive fields and pelotons and how women psychologically almost tend to sort of, when they're competing, they're thinking about their competitors in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's like you're a tribe mm-hmm. and women are, are in a sense, there are times when women describe that they don't wanna, they didn't wanna be too aggressive too early in the race because they didn't wanna make some of their competitors look too bad or feel too bad if they beat them. Mm-hmm. So that's why women's races tend to kind of stick together, at least in a road format, more or less. Yeah. And that came up for me when you were talking about, oh, as soon as I saw, you know, someone in front of me go over that drop, I could, I knew I could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe isn't directly comparable, it just brought it up. Whereas men are basically all trying to stab each other in the throat from the gun, from you the know, gun. it's like and you can tell. naked battle to death, right? Yeah. It's just so interesting to look at the psychology of how those play out and yeah. But then after the line, men are all, hey, buddy, how's it going? And I mean, after the line, women are like, Fuck you. Right. Like, 
<laughs> like I'm not talking to you, yeah, right? I hate you. Um, you chop me in that corner. Right. Because it's like a more of a violation of perhaps of that camaraderie or that it's, contract. It's, I'm so glad know. you brought that up because I was just, so I was, I'm, I'm coaching this group of girls, young women who mm -hmm. are 13 and 14 right now. And it's really interesting watching them because they like, we, we did like a, a fake race the other day because no one's racing, right? So we did like a little time trial. They were all, they, the, the, you know, top three girls had all kind of caught each other and they're all riding together. And, um, and then they were going into the final sprint, which was like a road into a corner and they were all just riding together. And I was like, stop being so nice. <laughs> like, like, don't be, this is not the time to be nice. Like be yep. nice to each other afterwards. Right. Like yeah. you're here to make each other faster right now. Mm -hmm. Right. You're not here to be nice to each other. And, um, mm -hmm. and it, I felt like really aggro about it, but I also feel like it's a really good lesson, um, to, uh, especially when they're younger and they're in a group, they're really conscious of how what they're doing affects the other people. Yeah. And I think it's to everyone's detriment um, because because the, the consequences are so high, right? Like if you beat that girl in that sprint, she's going to be mean to you next week, right? Mm. She's not going to talk to you afterwards. She's going to make a different friend, right? There's this like weird dynamic, right? Hmm. But I think if I think at higher levels it's happening and I think it's starting to happen more often with women as we're just like the the level of competition is elevating and we're not penalizing each other for being fast, right? But I think it's to everyone's detriment if we're if you if you hold back like that, right? Cuz you're not making your teammate faster, you're not getting faster, you're not finding what you're capable of, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so funny that you don't have to teach guys that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's 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 always such a fun uh, puzzle to try to solve with these girls. It's really cool. Yeah, that's cool. So your coach, how many? How big is the group? Uh, six of them. Okay. Yeah. 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 We we uh, broke all the groups into smaller groups this year because of the um, COVID regulations. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we try to keep it really really small and insular. So like you know, try to limit exposure to just the people that you're working with. Right. Um, right. But. Yeah, it's it's a cool group. I'm I'm they're all very competitive. Mm. Like I have I've had different uh levels of competitiveness with the girls I've worked with over the years. Um, but I feel like every generation they get more and more competitive. Mm. Um because and I I just really think this is like the direction that women's racing is going generally, right? Like I bet the next generation is not going to hold back on that finish, right? Mm. I'm not going to have to tell them to, right? Why do you think that's trending that way? Cuz I think women's racing is becoming more legitimate. You're, there's more equal pay. That's an expectation. I think it's gathering momentum. I think we're seeing that like World Cup mountain bike racing is way more fun to watch the women's races. Like they're dramatic. They're exciting. Mm -hmm. um, they're amazing athletes. Uh, yeah, I just think it's becoming, I think there's momentum behind it. And, and like you look at NICA and the quality of racing and the number of kids out there and the community they're creating. It's like just the the support around the whole concept of racing is so much better and so much more like acceptable, right? Like it's like dropping your kids off at soccer practice, right? You know, right? And um and so when you have that like volume of high quality training and racing and you know places for them to go when they get fast, right? Like yep. I think I think that fosters like the whole competitive like drive much better, right? It's beautiful. It's like. You got to make it a win for the parents, right? Yeah, yeah. If the parents are dropping their kids off to go on a road ride, you know, down Highway 36 with traffic, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> or race some open road race or something random that's less appealing. I mean, I, I grew up, I got started racing 
because of the course classic and the red zinger mini classic yeah um that formed which was a kids series based on the red zinger the actual red zinger stage race yeah and it was a kids series and that was road racing back then for kids age 10 to 14 yeah and uh, I did a podcast the other day with Jonathan Vodders. We didn't talk about this, but he started racing there too. <laughs> and some reasonably famous racers came out, like Chris Weary came out of that program, and Jimmy Killen. Yeah. He was uh, he represented the U.S. in mountain bike worlds a couple times, and and um, that was so cool. But I don't think you could have that series now because there are just too many cars on the road. Mm-hmm. The liability insurance to have 300 kids out riding around on the Morgul Bismarck Road Course on a Saturday. Like no way. Like, so taking kids and having the high school mountain bike program is just genius. I mean, mm-hmm. I wish I had access to this when I was at Boulder High. Everyone says this, right? right? Like it's just, cause you see, like the main thing I see is that they have friends who ride and they go ride together and yeah. they push each other and yeah. they, you know, take care of each other and they support each other. There's always someone cheering for them when they're out riding. Like mm-hmm. when I was racing, I was like the only person I knew. It was like- oh. Same here. Yeah. It was like the only person in your high school. There's maybe one other. Right? You're at like a party with your parents and they're like, what do you do for fun? You're like, I'm a bike racer. They're like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. And then you spend 15 minutes explaining how you spend every weekend by yourself, like riding around in the mountains. Right. right yeah. Yeah. And they still don't get it at Wearing the end spandex. of it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for some reason. Right. <laughs> okay. So why don't we pass back to, to reloop? Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, but of course. Why don't we pass up? Okay. JV, the other day we were talking, he was like, okay, if I could have it my way, I would put all juniors on six-speed Regina freewheels because they shift like crap and they force you to pedal at 140 RPM and also 50 RPM because you just don't have enough gears. <laughs> so you actually have to learn how to finesse a bike. He's like, mm-hmm. if I could take every 12-year-old talented kid and make them ride like that until they were 18, and then on your 17th or 18th birthday, you get DI2 and you know a power meter. <laughs> Boom, there you go. And, and so- Man, that's totally my parents' philosophy. D- <laughs> Do you think that we would make similar headway with women and body image if we mandated that all Nika high school students wore baggy clothes and did away with Lycra? Hmm. I, that was not the direction I was expecting you to go in. But yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thought. Less body image, less... For sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, anytime there's a dress code, people get bummed, right? I'm sure there's girls who love wearing spandex, right? I'm sure there are. I don't want to imply that like, you know, you can't love wearing spandex because I'm sure lots of people do. I I have definitely felt like real cool in my spandex sometimes, right? But yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I wonder if that would uh, create like healthier sort of body image stuff mm-hmm. for that just like kind of really vulnerable period. I'd like to see more. I bet you that that period is measurable, that period where you're just super vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's things we can do in that period to make it better, but yeah. It just occurred to me, it seemed like an easy, actionable yeah. thing. That's interesting. No lycra allowed. I thought you were going to say we should all make them race on shitty bikes. I don't know. <laughs> For me, I I definitely see like, okay, there's the discussion about economic achievability or actionability for someone, for a parent who can't afford some bike. And then there's the discussion about the kid who has the super racy stuff and they're beating all the other kids because they've got a million dollars of the equipment. And I'm sure there are times when that's happened. There are other times when it doesn't matter because that kid isn't that fast anyway or whatever. And so it kind of all comes out in the wash to a degree. Part of cycling culture is about meshing man and woman with machine. And so we are kind of have to be dorky to a degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we weren't, if we had zero interest in the equipment, we might be trail runners, right? Maybe, or, or we would just run on the road, but because those are people who don't really care. I think 
most runners just put on shoes and go run. Yeah. They're more about the activity than they are about the stuff. Cyclists have this weird fetish thing about derailers and wheels and carbon and and whatever. That said, I think you could get away with that, you know, like a little 500 style where you mandate a certain level of equipment. But the thing about mountain biking is the technical performance of the equipment actually really does impact the quality of a ride to a yes. big degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, go ride a mountain bike that's 15 years old and you realize what a piece of junk it was immediately. Mm-hmm. Like there, the, the amount of technology, the way technology has changed mountain biking in the last decade is, and, and then another decade past that. Even just the last insane. two years, right? Yeah. Or five years. Yeah. I had a bike that's five years old and I can't even get parts for it anymore. <laughs> right. Like, but then if you rode it on the trail, you could feel the difference. That's my point. Like yeah. I could put you on a road bike that was 20 years old. And if it was adjusted the same as a modern road bike, you'd feel a few different, you know, if you were blindfolded, don't ride a bike blindfolded people. <laughs> this is a thought experiment. But if you were blindfolded and you rode the two bikes back to back, you could probably tell the difference, but it wouldn't be like, holy crap, one's the new one is so much better. It'd be like, yeah, it's a little this, a little that. But if I put you on a mountain bike that was 15 years old, you'd be like, almost crashing the whole time, you know, yeah. and way slower yeah. and having less fun. Yeah. You can feel the difference. That's my point between rim width, tubeless tires, improvements in suspension, improvements in geometry, disc brakes, improvements in frames, disc brakes. I mean, <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe we used to not race disc brakes. Right. Like that blows my mind. <laughs> the first cross country I ever did in steamboat, I didn't have a fucking fork. Yeah. I used a rigid fork. <laughs> and well, I thought I was so, probably get away with I that. was like, I'm going to smash everybody on the hills. <laughs> Didn't even think about the downhills. This is, yeah. I probably had like 60 PSI my tire too. Yeah. Because. Because you do. That's what you do when you have tubes. You yeah. The kids, yeah. The kids I'm coaching have like almost never had a flat. It's just because they've grown up with tubeless tires, which right. blows my mind too. I'm right. Like, right. You didn't ever have to deal with tubes. You've never patched a tube. Like. <laughs> Patch a tube? Why yeah. would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> Tubes? What's a tube? Yeah. (laughs) Good. Okay. Pop quiz. Oh, God. Which happens to be very apropos. What'd you have have for breakfast this morning? Uh, Oh, muesli. It's like a homemade muesli. So I had, it's like shredded apples and oats and oat milk and strawberries and blueberries, bananas, peaches, and nuts. That sounds delicious. That was amazing. Did you overnight oats or do you do it in the morning? No, it's like a, it's a cold breakfast. It's like an old family recipe, actually. It's called bear hair muesli. Bear hair? (laughs) Yeah. Because the the apples look like kind of (laughs) hairy. You have hairy apples in your muesli? Well, when you shred them. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Important detail. It's like the, my dad used to make it growing up. It's like the taste of summer to me. It's like, that's how I know it's summertime. Do you put cinnamon (laughs) and stuff in it too? A little vanilla and a little lemon. A little lemon. Mm-hmm. That sounds very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of like fruit salad than right. oats. But And are you a big carb protein? How's, how's your macronutrient spread looking? Are you paying attention to that stuff right now much? Or are you just sort of, do you eat a lot of animal protein? No. I eat meat like once or twice a week. Okay. Yeah. I try to eat mostly carbs. Yeah. yeah. Mostly carbs. And I like try to up the fat if I knew I'm going to do a big endurance thing. Most of the that's so unfashionable right now. I don't care. <laughs> Excellent answer. <laughs> that's how I feel good. <laughs> no, good. Um, you know your body. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to do the whole 30 thing. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. I did that a couple of years ago because I was writing an article about it. And um, having no glycogen in your body is horrible. It's a terrible feeling. Like I could ride forever and not get hungry, but I couldn't make it up a hill. Like it was a really bizarre 
so yeah, like now mm -hmm. that I got back to the carbs, I, I just try to eat them all the time. I've had similar experiences uh, playing with the keto boundaries Yeah, myself and seeing athletes go through it as well. Yeah. I, and I uh, was recently on a call with, uh, she didn't call me. It was like a, a group chat with Stacey Sims. And mm -hmm. um, she talked about how bad keto is, especially for women, um, because we're already basically in a fat adapted state. And when we also deprive ourselves of calories, it like kind of just messes up the whole balance of everything. Yes. Um, I think it can work for men. I just, mm. yeah, I, I, what she said totally resonated with me. I was yeah. like, yeah, that sounds about right. It's so I've, I've taken a couple courses on this recently. Um, the check Institute offers a course specifically about training for women. And they talk about that in particular, you know, when women are in their moon and they're, they're mm. menstruating. Uh, the low hormone phase. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Ligaments are more lax, right? They're more prone to overtraining. And mm. that's when carbs are really, even in the week before, my understanding is that carbs are pretty essential. Yeah. Otherwise so, hormones can just fall off a cliff, right? Oh yeah. I mean, so I've been, I've been really reading Stacy's book Roar closely yeah. and um, trying to learn a lot more about how to train with your cycle. Yeah. Um, because she said something at ECS last year that was about it. It's like an adaptogenic aid. It's ergogenic. It's a, it's a body aid. It's something yeah, your body ergogenic. does that can aid yeah. you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to sound smart over here. We can use as many four syllable words as you want. <laughs> anyway, your period is basically a metric you should track because um, yes. where you're at in your cycle really changes how your body processes water, how it processes carbs, how it processes protein your temperature regulation, like everything, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so what works for me, just like the Cliff Notes version, is my rest week is the week before I get my period. And then as soon as I get it, it's like game on. It's like mm. hard week. Because that hormonally is when you're closest to a dude. You're like building muscle really well. You're regulating temperature really well. Your hydration's on point. So that's a good time to like dig deep, it which is not what I... contrary to what you might think initially, right? Right, because your your body's not super comfortable, right? right. Um, but right. you can actually get some really good training. And you hear like tons of stories about women having really great races when they're on their period and right. like trying to time things that way. So mm -hmm. it's a really interesting thing to try to play with and measure and, and keep track of. But yeah, I think it works well to take a rest week when you're PMSing too because you're just feeling like crap anyway, right? What are you using to track your cycle? Are you using an app or something or are you just do you just know it? I just know it and it's the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I know some athletes that I've worked with and some women use, there's some different apps out there you can use that. Mm -hmm. Garmin has like a whole like detailed reporting system now on right. their app. Yeah. 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 I think this is something too that I would encourage male coaches who have female clients to really don't be shy. Like this is something you should feel comfortable. I mean, well, should. This is something ideally you will feel comfortable discussing with your client because it's important. It's important to know what's going on. I mean, you should know if your female client is menstruating, first of all. Like, mm -hmm. are they training so hard that they've tanked their hormones and they're not? Or maybe. Yeah, if that's... they're not menstruating, that's like step one, right. right? Right. Yeah. So these are things to, to know about your client and understand. Mm -hmm. If you're writing training for them and they're not. You're not on the same page. I'm not saying it has to happen all the time with every client. There might be clients who are uncomfortable discussing that with you. Mm -hmm. I'm saying be open to it. Yeah, I think um, approaching the conversation like uh, this is a metric that we can use to help you train. It's like you've got this amazing piece of information that you're not using if you're not 
tracking it or communicating about it right so yeah i think the work that stacy's doing is pretty cool oh man she's my hero she's so cool shedding so much light on yeah on how dimly lit the world of women's sports oh i mean women all knew it (laughs) right (laughs) yeah yeah um, well, but it's cool hopefully to have someone did. like her. I don't know. Some of them corner. maybe didn't. <laughs> yeah. That's even sadder, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I the goldfish think... can't see the water they're swimming in. And that applies to men and women. Yeah. Right? That's true. Yeah. I just, I, you know, always appreciate how uh, determined she is to make sure that research gets done mm-hmm. and in ways that it needs to be done. So mm-hmm. hashtag women are not small men. <laughs> exactly. Right? Go by Roar. <laughs> Go by Roar. Yeah. It's a good resource. Um, we'll put a link to that in our keyboard mudra section. What major events would you say changed your trajectory as an athlete? You've outlined kind of how things went historically, mm-hmm. but what were the what were the events or mentality shifts that you had that kind of directed you to where you are now? And are you still, are you currently racing? Do you have designs to race in the future? Mm-hmm. What What does Lydia's future race resume look like? Oof. If it has races on it, or does it just have more winter park adventures? Yeah. I mean, well, like everyone, my calendar is blank this year. Um, right. Yeah. So, and I'm it's actually been a normal year. <laughs> yeah. If it was a normal year, I would be trying to do the epic rides and do better at them and uh, shooting for like more marathon length races. Okay. I really like doing those last year. I think it's a good distance for me. So, yeah. Um, and I like the training for it. Like, I think training for cross country is really like intense interval based, like just like more pain. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> not that marathon training is not hard, but I think that that sort of more relaxed, like long format works better for me. So we're talking 100K to 160K mountain bike races, right? I don't understand kilometers. Um, just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like three to five hour type things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's what I would be doing. But yeah, I'm actually really enjoying this opportunity to not race uh, and not go through that sort of roller coaster of stress because – it's giving me this like perfect season to just do a ton of base and mm-hmm. do like the big exploration rides I always wanted to do that you can't really ever fit into a race calendar, right? Like where do you fit that winter park ride into a race calendar? Because right. you know you're going to be wrecked, right? And I mean, unless you're Lachlan, then you can just do it every day. But Unless you're Lachlan. <laughs> yes. Um, but I need to rest, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's been cool. I've been uh, doing a lot of mapping i got on strava for the first time so i've been seeing like some cool new routes and using that and uh i'm really actually enjoying the way the season is going and i think by the time racing starts again i'll be psyched to do that too yeah cool yeah okay so i asked you two questions in one and the first part of that question was what were the major events that changed your trajectories oh yeah i love that you asked this one and when i was thinking about it last night i was like oh what am i going to say and i i was thinking that the major thing that has really changed my trajectory is the sheer number of injuries I've had. Mm. Um, I've had three ACL reconstructions in both my shoulders, a bunch of broken bones, like a um, bunch of concussions. <laughs> it's It's been wow. kind of like kind of rough. And so there was a period between, you know, like in my 20s where almost every other year I had a season ending injury and had a massive surgery that sent me back to like full on like atrophy life, right? So I've gone to total zero and started there again so many times that I feel like that has shaped my like my attachment to sports because I always know that like I want to be doing them at any level, even Mm -hmm. if it's like, you know, 
super bird leg level or, you know, climbing five, eight or, you know, just like anything to keep myself moving Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I so appreciate being able to move at all. Right. Cause I've spent so much time, um, rehabbing. So I think those help me kind of detach my ego from my performance and, uh, just appreciate movement. And, and yeah, so to me, it's like, am I going to race? Am I not going to race? Maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't really matter. It's like, I like being able to do things at the highest level that I'm able at the time, but I'm not really worried about it. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you know how many injuries I had. <laughs> I don't think I knew they were quite that many. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've been beaten up. Yeah. When I, my last shoulder surgery, I was like, I was so bummed and I was in this, this sling and um, I just, I was like, I'm not going to sit on the couch for six months again. And I I started uh, like making dates across town. So I'd have to walk. And I was just walking back and forth across yep. Boulder for like three months. Like got really good just at walking. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> Walking is an important part of exercise. It's an amazing part of exercise. Hiking. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a big fan of these like really slow, boring sports lately. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, okay, local talk here. We have all these climbs and all the climbs have sort of like a first part. And then the second part is always called super. So like you can climb to Jamestown and then there's super Jamestown, which is where you do the steep part above it. Mm -hmm. There's Flagstaff to the amphitheater. And then there's super Flagstaff where you go all the way to the top to the the mailboxes in the clouds. And then there's super Walker. And then there's super Walker where you ride over super Flagstaff and then you ride the Walker mountain bike trail and ride back. There's also super longs. Ha, I've right? thought about that. I have too. Recently, <laughs> just the other day, I saw someone post on Instagram about it. And I went, ooh, that might need to be my next adventure. So just mm-hmm. to give people an idea, Longs is one of the more tame 14er on the front range. No. <laughs> it only it's requires- It's one of the bigger 14ers on the front range. Aren't they all the same size? No. <laughs> no, you feel it. Have you, you've gone up longs. I've never been up longs. Oh, you should do it before you do super longs. <laughs> no way. That's cheating. You drive up to it. So I climbed longs when I was 12 yeah. and I vomited the entire way. Oh boy. Yeah. Cherry pie was what I had the night before. <laughs> and I remember and the that. Next day. I will always remember that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh. Um, but it was also really cool because it was during the, I think the Perseid meteor shower mm. um per se it however you say it mm. and so it was just raining because you said you have to start at like 2 a.m right. so you're hiking in the dark most of the time and it was just raining stars the whole time it was wow. so amazing i'll wow. never forget it yeah. yeah but one of the most like like just brutal like because you're also i was also vomiting the whole time and watching these stars <laughs> and and being like oh god i still have this like massive like scary mountain to get up and uh-huh. yeah it was uh what'd your parents think about that i guess they they didn't they didn't go oh yeah ah. i was hiking with some soccer teammates i see yeah that makes more sense i think <laughs> mom might have been like you're going home now you <laughs> threw up your 12th cherry pie or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was like how is there more pie yeah so speaking of scary stuff, have you ridden, what's the trail in Moab that's like now has a sign posted that's like, do not stop on this trail, you will die. Portal. Is, that's Portal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you've ridden that trail. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there didn't used to be a sign many years ago. Until someone died, I imagine. I would imagine. Yeah. Until someone litigious came along and decided to stick a sign. Hopefully their family's not listening yeah. to this. Hopefully not. I've <laughs> never ridden that trail. Really? No. Oh, you should. It's, it's not the best trail there. Right. It's more just like the, the shock to, factor. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, 
to make this maybe relevant to some listeners at this point, like, <laughs> you mentioned several times that you you legitimately felt scared when you were racing in Europe, when you would pre-ride the trails. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, that's a bit interesting because it seems like what I've been consistently hearing is that the UCI has been consistently making mountain bike trails more challenging and more technical aspects to them on the World Cup level for sure, right? They're yeah. trucking in big boulders and making big drops and stuff. Yeah, I think it's um, – and this is with very limited experience. Like I only did like two or so years of like even coming close to that level. But from my perspective, it seems like they're building in – it's more man-made features, right? Right, Like bigger drops, like big berms, like kind of more bike park looking yeah. features. Um, the things that always scared me the most were like the natural shoots full of roots or, yeah. right? Like yeah. I feel like when you're on a man-made feature, you you know that if you hit it with the right speed, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like when you're on a trail, it's like obviously made by goats. Right. Um, there's no guarantee that it's it's like rideable. That a mountain bike tire fits in those goat <laughs> Yeah. <holes>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or a water a trail that's just been made by water erosion. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, sometimes the, those are the funnest trails, but they yeah. can't. And sometimes then they suddenly turn to yeah death. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it makes it a lot more fun to watch. I think it has driven a lot of really cool bike development. Like you mm-hmm. look at cross country bikes now, and they're so much better. Like yeah. they're bikes that people would actually want to ride. They're not you know stripped down as much. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it also makes it more relatable to mountain bikers to watch because it's not like watching a, a dirt crit anymore, right? Yeah, like a like a trail rider can watch a cross country race, like a enduro rider or a downhiller can watch a cross country race and be like, "Well, that's badass," you know. It used Which, to be a lot the bigger delta between the two the disciplines. I think well, so. Back in the day, it was just downhill and cross country, and none of it was on was TV. Massive. There was no way to watch it anyways. So. Right, 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 right. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Do you find yourself riding now like a lot of the modern terrain parks that are super sculpted and burned out and crazy? Do you ride that stuff a lot or are you more? Um, I tend to like Alpine riding like Breckmore. Um, yeah. Those are, that's like my bread and butter. I love trails like that where it's like they obviously have some history. Like there's a reason it's there. It had to get from point A to point B for like mining or whatever. And, or, you know, it's an animal trail in some cases, or it's like a male trail, like the, like the one from Crested Butte to Aspen, right? Uh-huh. Um, like I like trails like that that have like some history and have been like a pathway for something, right? Mm-hmm. I like trails that'll, that are built for fun and built for big bikes. I get that powder day feeling. That's great. If I were to choose one trail to ride for the rest of my life, it'd be stuff like Breck for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What about you? What's Wait, what's the biggest mountain bike ride you've ever done? What's the biggest ride you've ever done? Uh, the biggest ride I've ever done was that uh, thing I came in to talk to you about after I messed up my knee. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, which Tell was like a, that. so it's like a, it's the part of Rafa's Festive 500, um, thing they do every year where you're supposed to try and ride 500 kilometers between Christmas and New Year's. But cyclists are cyclists, so there's always people who try to do it in one go. My boyfriend is like the person who puts it on in Seattle. And so I went out to visit him and he was like, let's go to the peninsula for, you know, a week and away. And it was really just driving the route so we could scout it. Ah. <laughs> and, and so we're driving this route and I'm like, you are crazy. You are crazy. This is insane. Like you're going to make people ride this. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's so 500 kilometers is roughly like 340 miles. So you're, you're looking at like you a- You do know metric. 
Uh, well, only because I have done that math ah, okay. <laughs> and have, have ridden those miles now, <laughs> counted them. Right. Um, oh, no, 500K is actually more like 300 miles, but the brevet, because of the way the route was, had to be 340. Okay. So I didn't think I was going to do it. And then I kind of got, it kind of got a hold of my brain and I had to do it and yeah. just to see if I could. And it was one of the coolest, craziest, like just... Um, wild experiences in my life because I, I literally rode for like 40 hours yeah. um, through the night, through the rain. I mean, you know, Seattle in December isn't great. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not super pleasant there, yeah. especially when you're right up against the ocean. So we were just, we just got poured on the whole time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but there was something about like the, the challenge of trying to figure out the right gear to have. And like, do I need to have like waterproof? I, I was really excited about my mitten system that I came up with where I was wearing Nordic ski gloves underneath these waterproof mitten shells. And my hands were so happy. I was so proud of my like mitten system. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that was, it was cool. That, so that's the longest ride I've done. Were they the mitten, same mittens you bought at the visitor center with your dad? That would be a really cool, uh, <laughs> I'll just say yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> Good. We'll go with it. <laughs> so 40 hours. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I slept for like four of them at a yeah. motel and uh, tried to dry off my stuff. But yeah. Yeah. But it, was... it didn't matter because as soon as you got on the bike anyway, everything was wet again. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I'm with you on the terrain, on the mountain bike terrain. I'd, I'd say Breck or give me a lap of like sourdough, which is a high alpine terrain here above. Yeah. Sourdough is special. Sourdough is like, it's just that high alpine single track. That's kind of, yeah, half made by a goat or a mining cart or some mountain bikes or some skiers. You don't really know. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a Boulder boy. Grew up here. So, yeah. Yeah. The riding around like Winter Park too. Right. Always gets me. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about the air and all the pine trees. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's something, it's, so I think about these trails every time I test a bike, right? That's always my criteria is could I race the Wednesday night world short track on it? And could I ride in winter park on it? So you're, you have fallen victim to the, how do I make a one quiver bike problem? Well, it's just where I put it on that spectrum, right? Like, is it closer to Wednesday night worlds or is it closer to, um, you know, five hours, unpredictable Alpine single track. Right. right? And I I found this really like a pretty good Mm -hmm. range for most bikes that I like to ride. So what's your, What's in your, your bike garage currently? What, if we went to Lydia's garage and looked, what would we find? What well, treasures? I, I don't have a garage. I just have a small condo. But Even I, better, your um, living room. <laughs> yeah, I got rid of my my guest bed and I put a two by four on the wall with a bunch of hooks in it. So well now done. there's six bikes hanging from my wall. I have a Pivot Mach 4 SL. That's like my actual bike that I bought that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm testing the new Swerks Evo, um, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my daily driver these days is the Trek Supercaliber. I've been like experimenting with putting some different parts on it and mm. it's, it's real nice. I was um, involved in the development of that bike actually. I did were a you really? Camp and, yeah. Did no some way. testing for it a little bit. Really? Yeah. Love That's, that bike. That makes sense. Cause I feel like it is the singular perfect bike for the front range. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's like you can ride every fire road on it. You can take every trail you can see it's, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's forgiving enough. I've, I literally was going on like road rides on it because my cross bike wasn't working for me anymore. And okay. um, like didn't seem to penalize me at all. I mean, it's like a 22 pound bike, right? right. So right. Um, yeah, no, I, I've, I've been digging that bike. Cool. Um, 
what else? I have a Kona Super Jake, which is a cross bike. And then another Mach 4. It's my boyfriend's and his uh, st- titanium road bike. Okay. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, so, so the boyfriend got two hooks and you have no road bike. Yes. All right. Yeah. So you guys got to be at least a year in then. <laughs> we're close. Yeah, we're close. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, it was a little a little bit of a weird timeline because of the uh, quarantine. Mm-hmm. So it was like yeah. either we're not going to see each other for, you know, unforeseeable future or yeah. um, you're moving in. Right. So, right. Yeah. I feel a little bad for him. I think it's pretty hard to come live in a place where you can't actually get to know anyone or go anywhere. I've had a few clients recently that I've worked with in the office who are like, yeah, I moved to Colorado from wherever in November and I have one friend. Yeah. <laughs> this is a rough go. This is a rough time for people to transition and for go sure. anywhere in the world Yeah, if you're moving somewhere new. He has a pretty unshakable brain though. He seems like totally fine. So <laughs> He's, he has a good outlook. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing all your stories and your wisdom. And yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate Always it. Always fun to talk. Where do people find out more about Lydia Tanner? I'm on Instagram. Okay. Yeah, and I'm on I, I'm on Strava now. <laughs> You're on Strava? Yeah. You're going to have all kinds of followers. Is that? It's all under Lid Loves Mud. Lid Loves Mud. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in our notes. Cool. And um, people can, can manipulate their finger pads to find you yeah. as needed. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you so much. Disclaimer. Listen up, monkeys. The ramblings on this podcast represent me and me alone. They're not indicative of the thoughts or opinions of Fast Labs or Chris Case or Trevor Connor or anyone else. Also, none of this advice is intended to prescribe or diagnose anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So just want to be clear on those points. Thanks for listening.